This episode is brought to you by Amazon.com. Go to this episode's page on Nerdist.com and click on the Amazon banner. Then shop like you regular do on Amazon, which is the place where everybody buys everything. Are there other stores? I don't think there are. So help support our show by supporting our sponsors. Again, go to this episode's page at Nerdist.com and click on the Amazon banner. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be enlightening. It's very really frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits A26LA, the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on A26LA, visit A26LA.org. I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program and the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. Uh, I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. With a background in feature writing, our first panelist created the series Miracles and co-created The Gates, both for ABC. He has written for and produced, among other series, True Calling, The Dead Zone, Supernatural, and The Secret Circle. He's currently working for NBC's Grimm. Please welcome Richard Haddam. Hello. Hello. Oh, okay. All right. I feel good. Okay. <laughs> Primarily as a writer, but also as a producer and director, our next panelist has worked for The Jeffersons, MASH, After MASH, Cheers, Wings, Frasier, The Simpsons, Becker, Everybody Loves Raymond, Darman Gregg, among many others. Uh, He co-created Almost Perfect, and since the early 90s, he's been a play-by-play commentator for Major League Baseball, currently for the Seattle Mariners. He has a terrific website at kenlevine.blogspot.com. Please welcome Ken Levine. Welcome. Thanks for mentioning Aftermash. <laughs> you forgot Mannequin 2. <laughs> I was sparing you. <laughs> On the go? On the move? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We ended up uh, getting partial credit on that one. Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I put my kids through college from the royalties. There you go, you guys. Features, get into it. <laughs> With early writing credits, including Boy Meets World and Friends, our final panelist is the co-creator of Clone High and Spin City. He created Scrubs, which ran for nine seasons on two networks. He is the co-creator of Cougar Town, which is in its third series and has Like Father in a piloting contention at Fox. Please welcome Bill Lawrence. I feel guilty I clapped for you guys like this. <laughs> no one could see me. Hey, Clone High is worth it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. All 13 episodes? <laughs> Six weeks? Let's get into it, you guys. Bill, I want to start with you because, uh, as I was just mentioning, I recently read your new pilot and uh, I was totally impressed by it. It was, it was funny, it was charming, um, and it seems to me it's a lot more personal than maybe some of the past pilots you've worked on. Can you talk about that? Sure. What is different about uh, this pilot? I did, uh, the last show I did, I, you know, Cougar Town, I, I, came to, uh, I came to really love it, but it was the first time I ever did a show that was kind of a, a piece of business, you know, because it was work for Disney, and Courtney Cox had a deal at Disney, and uh, I decided to make a show. And I, and I really loved it, but I wanted to do, I hadn't done anything really personal since Scrubs. And uh, like Fathers, uh, uh, it's about my dad and my relationship, which is dicey. 
because uh, the network's pr- already promoting it is very autobiographical, even though the mom's <laughs> dead and my uh, my mom isn't dead. <laughs> so she's she's not digging it. And, uh, so she won't cooperate. Hey, networks networks will do anything uh, no. to ensure accuracy. Be careful. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> and I named the dead mom Krista, which is my wife's name. So I'm, uh, I'm getting fucked there too. Keep so. digging a hole. Yeah, yeah. It's deeper and deeper. But uh, you know, I, I I I thought I might try to do something I'm emotionally invested in, partly because I haven't done it in a while, and partly because that usually ensures it'll never be on television. You know? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm psyched about it. And I just want to inter- interrupt for one second. Sure. Um, the story of Cougar Town. Uh, for those of you who haven't heard uh, Bill's appearance on the Mark Marin podcast, I think that's where I heard that story, and it's great, and we're not going to go over it again here. But tell us a little bit about, you know, again, it, it is a, a bit of a more personal story, like Father, um, but tell us about, you know, any any pitching that to the network. Pitching like Father to the networks? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that I, uh, uh, I think the thing that sucks right now about pitching TV shows, I mean, it harkens back to the Cougar Town story, and you guys can, can jump in, obviously, is everybody's looking for the big hook, you know? And I think, ultimately, television is more about execution than it is about the idea, personally. And uh, so, the, the, in a nutshell, the two-sentence version of Cougar Town, the way it came to be, is someone called me up from Disney and said, you want to do the Courtney Cox show? And I'm like, I don't think so. And, uh, <laughs> and I, we hung up the phone. I was in the writer's room, in the room bit, and I said, you know what sucks is I can't sell my passion project, but if I went to ABC right now and said, uh, Courtney Cox gets divorced and she's going to have her, uh, her 20s and her 40s, and it's called Cougar Town, I could sell it without doing any more work. <laughs> and we did a joke like that for a month that we used to joke that then Cougar Claws would rip the images off the, <laughs> off the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and then after <laughs> After like a month and a half, I'm like, should I do this? And uh, <laughs> and uh, I went in and pitched it to Steve McPherson, and he, you know, I got, I said that opening sentence, and he's like, I could sell that. I'm like, oh, what have I done? This is TV. <laughs> so uh, uh, the bummer is, that this is the show I've been wanting to do for a long time, and only, you know, like the two gentlemen with me, because I've had some luck uh, up to this point. I was able to, you know, essentially say it's a father-son story. Uh, I'm 43. I know I look 30. It's not a big deal. Yeah, but uh, it, uh, it, my dad just turned 64. So, you know, when I was a, a 18, 19-year-old in college, my dad would drop by and be one of the gang. He was only 30, 38 and 39, you know, at the time. And uh, it's not really a, a big hooky premise. But, uh, and by the way, when you go into those meetings, they were immediately like, could it be like back to school? And I'm like, it's not really back to school. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to take a shot at it. What's it be like back to school? Yeah, it'll be like back to school. You guys know as well like as I do what the pro, if I actually get on TV what the promos will be. It will be oh. that guy. The one scene that yeah. the guy's even close to a college campus will be, this dad's going back to school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I heard a network once uh, pitched a writer and said, we want to do Hogan's Heroes with Slaves. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, when I pitched that, it sounded good at the time. Right? So, <laughs> Jesus. Um, has the, once you got them on board, though, uh, with this is the premise, it's yeah. not a high concept, it's about this central relationship, was it, uh, did you find yourself facing challenges past that, or was it a... Yeah, you know, you know I, mean, I, I really think that uh, uh, a right or wrong 
any success at all in the television industry buys you a couple, you know, you get a, a grace period that you get. The, it, as soon as this fails, I'm going to be back going. Next year, it's going to be this, this dad. It is back to school. Okay? He's going to be on the diving team. It's the exact same. Um, but uh, uh, I think for now, uh, I'm just trying to jam my track, track record down their throats a little bit and, 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 and hopefully... You know, I mean, they ultimately it's their ball, and they can they can take it and go home, and, and uh, uh, you know, not pick it up. But uh, I'm going to really take a shot at making a show that uh, that I want to, and and, and uh, uh, that's why we call it. We 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 named it uh, the the working title of the pilot is Noble Failure because uh, <laughs> that is what we were shooting for. It is a giant financial failure that at least we're all very proud. Of. Yeah. At least you can be proud of it. Sure, um, Ken. I want to I want to dig into this uh, deep background, but do you have a baseball story? Uh, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, it's a requested baseball story. Uh, well, uh, I've been a comedy writer for quite a few years, and uh, I always wanted to be a baseball announcer. So uh, when I spent a year doing a series for Mary Tyler Moore, which was like a year-long wisdom tooth extraction. I decided uh, if I don't pursue baseball announcing, I never will. So I went to the Upper Deck of Dodger Stadium, and I broadcast games for a couple of years into a tape recorder, sitting up there with all the uh, drunks and the guys with the pinwheel hats and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and eventually I sent tapes around to try to get a job as a minor league announcer, and I got a job in Syracuse, which is AAA, it's the Toronto Blue Jays AAA farm system, although Syracuse is a pit. But, so we're doing these games, and we're on this terrible radio station. It was like at 1590, like 250 watts, and we would go to like nighttime pattern, and all of a sudden you couldn't hear it, you know, uh, in the third base stands. You know, I, I'd say, well, we're going to go to nighttime pattern, so we'd like to say goodnight to everybody from aisles 18 on. <laughs> and, and people would come up and complain that they couldn't hear us. And, and I would, you know, there's nothing I could do about it, but I would try to soften the blow by saying, well, we're just the flagship station from the worldwide Syracuse Chiefs radio network that uh, we're being heard all around the world. And I would, on the air, pause for station identification for the Worldwide Syracuse Chiefs Radio Network. And, uh, and I would talk about how the king of Bhutan is a big fan and, you know, how they love us in Nepal. And we had this third baseman named Norm Tanucci, and sweet kid from Connecticut, couldn't hit a lick. And every night, like 0 for 3, 0 for 4, always striking out. And so instead of just talking about what a terrible ball player he was, I figure, well, I'll have some fun. And I said that, uh, that he is a folk hero in Borneo. <laughs> that uh, his father parachuted in behind enemy lines during World War II. And, uh, and so he, he's, he's just a hero. That the currency is in Tanucha's. That... <laughs> 
98% of the male babies are named Norm, and 93% of the female babies are named Norm. And, and, I, and I would talk about it and how we were so uh, successful. You know, we were such a you know big attraction in Borneo. And one night we're in Oklahoma City, and he triples, which was like wow. And he comes up the second time, and I talk about how he tripled, and the fans in Borneo were were very excited. And the next pitch, he just crushes it. Just hits it a mile. And my home run call was, there's a drive to deep left field, Kemp to the track, to the wall, no school tomorrow in Borneo. (laughs) (laughs) He's handing out park equipment in Connecticut, right? (laughs) Uh, But you've been calling baseball now for like 20 years, right? Yeah, yeah. let me ask you, and I'm curious, I mean, you had a long career as a writer before that, as a television writer before that. What, what are you uh, experiencing from calling baseball that you didn't get as a writer? Well, I'd say the big difference is I can't change the ending. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I'm writing a show, I have some control. I have, you know, no control when, uh, you know, your team blows a five-run lead in, in the ninth inning. But you know what? It's very similar in that uh, I approach baseball announcing the same way I approach writing in that it's storytelling, that you're just telling a story and creating the drama and creating the, uh, the interest and getting the audience invested in the uh, either actors or the players. So in many ways, it's, it's very similar. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, let's move on for a moment, Richard. I told you I was going to be hard-hitting from the start. Yeah. Let's talk about Secret Circle. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> dare you? Tell us about your experience on this show, uh, which is, b- I by long, the way, a show I like quite a long bit. two months on that show. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Was, yeah, what happened? It was great. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I got fired. <laughs> um, what you were brought in when? I was brought in. Uh, at, at, the, uh, at the request of Kevin Williamson, he was a big fan of my work, uh, was. <laughs> you know, he really, really wanted me there. Uh, and so was I it went, to run the show? It was, well, it, it was weird. Like, at, at the beginning, there, there were talks of me working on Vampire Diaries, which he was no longer going to do. And I personally felt that that was not a good idea at all for me. Uh, because it was not a show that I was familiar with, and there were people who were much more familiar, and they were passionate fans, and it just it felt like that's that's just a a false thing to do. So I I, I, I that's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> that was a recipe for disaster. <laughs> um, and at the same time, he was doing a new show uh, called Secret Circle, and I read that script, and I said, well, maybe you know something that's just starting, I, I can sort of get in on that, and you know, be involved in in you know sort of creating whatever the eventual series based on a pilot ends up being. So Andrew Miller uh, is a guy who uh, you should have on this podcast. And a fantastic guy. And he and I had two really fun months um, on that show. And, and it's, it's funny. What, what happened was, and, and this you know, makes perfect sense. And by the way, Kevin Williamson, really sweet, wonderful, fun guy to be in a room with till three in the morning. Day after day after day. Um, but... But what eventually happened was Andrew and I were there sort of laying out what we thought the show would and could be. And at a certain point, as scripts and outlines started coming in, the studio quite rightly said, Kevin, have you seen this stuff? Please weigh in. 
this show has your name on it, you should uh, take a look at this stuff and you know make sure it's got that Kevin Williamson magic that we're paying millions and millions of dollars for. <laughs> and so he did. And you know, and, and it speaks to how shows are run and how you know sort of the real big names do their thing, which is Kevin is not a guy to come in and go. This stuff is good. Try to make it a little darker and maybe uh, a little bit twistier in the second act. And uh, good luck to you. I'm going to Hawaii. That's not his way. His way is to read it and go, well, well now, wait a second. Wait, does, uh, does someone have a computer? Hang on a second. And then he sits down. You know, there's no, there's no navigating. He's going to get behind that wheel. And so there was a period of time there where... You know, wherever you are on that ladder, you're trying to listen to the, the person above you, even if you are tacitly the showrunner, and go, well, okay, so what, what's the tune you're singing? And let me see if I can pick it up and start playing it too. And, and it's, sometimes it's very, very difficult. And sometimes the person playing the tune doesn't know what that tune is until they play it. So after a certain amount of time, he just said, okay, look, you know, clearly I, I, I'm going to have to get behind the wheel on this thing. So thank you very much for coming in. You won't be needed here any longer. So I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so seriously, I, I like drove straight home. That was last August. Uh, and I said, kids, you've got dad for the rest of the summer. <laughs> and they said, could you get out of the way? We're playing Wii. <laughs> so... So that, that's how that one went. And, uh, but I'm still in touch with those guys, and I would get, I, I'm still getting texts from the people on the show going, guess who's here at 3 in the morning, and guess who's not? <laughs> you lucky son of a bitch. <laughs> but, uh, but they're doing their thing, and they're having a good time, and they're, they're, you know, they're cool, cool people. And it seems like, I mean, it was not a bad experience for you. It was just no. the wrong fit. Uh, and we yeah. talked a little bit before, earlier about, you know, there's value in these mistakes, and even in getting fired, uh, to Ken and Bill, have you guys had these experiences? <laughs> Have you been fired? I, I got fired off my uh, first uh, four consecutive jobs. No kidding. True story. I got what fired were those? Off what of, happened? Uh, I got fired off of Friends, uh, oh. The Nanny, Boy Meets World. Yes, yeah, uh, they crushed it. I was on fire. <laughs> One and bam, bam, bam. My career is just like Bill's without the success. <laughs> um... Do you, do you know why? What were the circumstances? Uh, you know what? It's a, it's a, I mean, I, I, look, uh, Boy Meets World, I got fired because I was young, and, and uh, uh, I, I've since adopted an attitude that you do what you have to to get to do what you want. And uh, when I was younger, I didn't love the show. I, I should have been overjoyed that I got a, a gig to uh, get paid to write, you know? But uh, I wrote, I, I can tell you what happened is I wrote an episode of that show. I named it, that character Topanga. Her last name is Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> That's the gesture I do. <laughs> uh, but I wrote an episode of the show, and I'm like, you know what? I don't love this show, but I'm gonna... and I was a dick, okay? And uh, I wrote an episode. I'm like, you know what? The hell is it? I'm going to write something I'm really proud of. Was, uh, let, hang on, let me interrupt yeah. one second. Was this your first staff job? Uh, no, my first one was called Billy. It was, uh, it was also a horrible experience. Is that Billy Connolly show? Yeah. The worst thing about that, I, I didn't get fired off that, but I feel I would have. Because... You would have hung in there. Because the, uh, this is why, cause the, at the rap party, they gave you a jean jacket. is a cast, you know, cast crew gift, and it said Billy, and it had a heart over the eye. And I, I had a couple of drinks. I'm like, I don't fucking want this. And the guy, the, the executive producer, is like, why not? I'm like, it's my name. Like, I mean, no one's seen this show. They're just going to think I'm an asshole that wears jean jackets. <laughs> And uh, but anyways, so Boy Meets World. This actually has a moral. 
Uh, I wrote a, I wanted to be, I'm going to write an episode of these show. It's like Wonder Years, all right? I'm gonna, it was about uh, the first time that you become embarrassed about your dad. And because I knew I had to, because it was in the outline, I put this one line in it that said, uh, uh, the little kid says, I can't believe I hurt my dad because I love him more than anyone in the whole world. Treacle, you know, treacle, but it was fine, okay? And Michael, is, is his right as the showrunner and creator, took my draft, and he decided that that was the line that would drive the show, and he had the main character say it, and it's not an exaggeration, uh, seven times, okay? Because he just kept saying it. He thought the thing would be, not as a joke, he just kept getting focused on it. And that was back in the days of uh, message machines, and when it was on TV, you know, I was 22, 23, and I got home, and all my idiot friends from, it was literally like, you have 41 messages. And it was every guy I grew up with going, can't believe you hurt my dad. I love him more than anyone in the world. Uh, <laughs> I felt like such a tool. I went back and I was disrespectful, and uh, uh, and that show had an audience, and I should not have been disrespectful. So, so uh, did you take this lesson to your next job? I did, and so I Good. found new ways to get fired. <laughs> I got fired. Friends was the only real painful one because Friends was, um, um, it, you know, it became a monster hit the first season, and I, I was the only one shit canned at the end of the first year. Wow. So it just absolutely stunk. Uh, but that was a lesson in getting along with people. I did not get along with one of the creators of the show. Um, and uh, uh, one of them I really did. You know, the one thing I would tell people, they find that, though, I think that, the, the, and you guys can weigh in on this, one of the hardest things that I was never that great at is your job on a TV staff isn't to write what you think is funny. It's ultimately to write what the showrunners think is yeah. funny. And I always sucked at that. Well, you know, you know you're absolutely right. And, and it's, I mean, comedies or dramas. And the, it, it really is. You don't write the best episode of the show you can imagine, or even the best episode you can write. You write what they want you to write as well as you possibly can. That is your job. And that's not a sellout. That is what they need you to do. Because they're seeing a little bit further down the road than you are. And whether that's good or bad, but you know, they just got off the phone with the network saying, hey, can we make the show a little funnier? Or you know, can we cut down on the romance beats and focus on the a procedural or whatever? And, and believe me, and they may not understand why the network is asking for that. But that's, it's coming down from there to them. Then it's going down from them to you. And that is your job. And the more you can do that, the more likely you are to stay on that show if that is indeed what you want to do. I, I understand it now, too. I mean, I didn't then as a kid. And now, I mean, it's a skill I never had. But if, uh, uh, and, and, you know, some of this on the show, too. I mean, if you get a draft from someone that you say, well, if I'm going to take a pass at this, it'd take me a couple hours. And then we'd go ahead to the table read. It's like a gift from God. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And yeah. I, I could never do it. Yeah. Um, I was never fired off a TV show. Um, <laughs> It's I, awesome, uh, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Too good. Uh, I was, I, well, I was 100% fired. Oh, as a disc jockey, I was fired all the time. Yeah, I, I'd go in, the program director would say, hey, babe, we're making some changes, and you're one of them. <laughs> so, uh, but, but we got, we got, we got fired. Uh, my partner, David Isaacs, and I got fired once um, from doing a, a feature rewrite. We, um, we had met with the director, Randall Kleiser, and he had this movie. What a dick. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Sum, edit, summer, that's an edit point. Summer <laughs> Lovers or something. It was this thing with uh, Daryl Hannah and Peter Gallagher. Peter Gallagher. Yeah. So he was going off to make this thing, and he was a little nervous about the script. And he calls us in, and we sit down with him. And he was going in like 
you know, a week. So we talked about some of the things that we wanted to do, and he said, oh, that's great, that's great, love it, okay, go. You know, I'm going to need it by Monday, go. And we said, fine. And we walked out of his office, it was on the, uh, the Burbank lot, and we drove home uh, to the west side, and I get home, and uh, my agent calls and says, well, what happened in that meeting? And I said, well, you know, it was a, it was a good meeting. Why? She said, you're fired. <laughs> so somehow, the, the lesson here, <laughs> the lesson here is when you get a job, never go over Laurel Canyon. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what we did. <laughs> I don't know what you did, That's but, uh, but we, we got fired off of that. And, you know, you essentially get fired when they cancel your show. Yeah, yeah, they fire you and 120 of your best friends <laughs> who work on the show. Yeah, let's so. talk about some of those shows that you worked on before we get to the ones that lasted. Let's uh-huh. talk about some of the ones that didn't last and what worked, what didn't. I mean, they could have been great shows, but sometimes well, things just don't work. We did a show um, that lasted a year and a half on CBS called Almost Perfect, mm-hmm. starring Nancy Travis. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and uh, it was a very easy sell, we went into CBS and we said, you have a woman, single woman in her 30s who's having trouble with her career and trouble with her love life, and on the day she meets the guy of her dreams, she gets the job of her dreams, and they're both full-time jobs. How does she juggle them? So we did that, and, um, and the show is actually doing pretty well. The problem is that the regime that bought the show got fired and they brought in Les Moonves. And so we were an inherited show. And after the first year, um, we went back to New York and, um, and we had heard that Les had some issues with the guy. And we said to our people at Paramount, um, I mean, how severe are these issues? (laughs) Oh, I think he just wants them downplayed a little bit. I don't think it's any kind of a major thing. So we said, okay. And we go to New York, and we sit down, and we start pitching uh, a storyline for the second season. And Les stops me, and he goes, the fuck is this? (laughs) He goes, I want him off the show. I want him gone. That's it. So we then had 24 hours to reconfigure the show, and uh, we went back to a hotel, me and my partner, David Isaacs, and we also had a third partner, Robin Schiff, and now we're trying to put together this show. We don't know really what we're going to be writing about, uh, because that was really the core. Otherwise, it's just single girl with a job. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's the high wow. concept wow. hook they want. That's a, that's a bidding war for that. Yeah. So, so we can't come up with anything. And this is a great story of television. Uh, we, uh, we were supposed to have a 4 o'clock meeting, and the hours are clicking by. It's now 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock. We don't have anything. We have to go in in an hour. And we get a call from our guys at Paramount saying, well... Hold off, keep working, but the meeting is being postponed. We're working on some stuff. 
And we go, okay, 4 o'clock goes by, 5 o'clock goes by. We're sweating because we still don't have anything. And then we get a call at like 6 o'clock from Paramount saying, okay, you've been picked up. And we go, huh? (laughs) What? And what had happened was this, and it's a great lesson in television, when you think, well, the best shows get on and the worst shows don't get on and that sort of thing. Uh, NBC had just canceled JAG. And uh, ABC was interested in JAG, and Donald Belisario, the creator of JAG, was on an airplane to New York and was going to have a breakfast meeting the next day with ABC to talk about JAG. They wanted it to, to go on after Monday Night Football in January. And Les wanted that show, and that's a Paramount show. And so Les says to Paramount, we want JAG. And Paramount says, well, if you pick up JAG, you have to pick up Almost Perfect. (laughs) And so Donald Belisario gets off the plane, and Les said, well, he has to pick, because if he takes that ABC meeting, then the deal's off the table. So he has to pick right now. So he gets off the plane and talks to our agent who uh, runs down the the best points of each, and, uh, and he says, uh, all right, well, then I'll, I'll go to CBS. So Paramount says, okay, uh, CBS. And then CBS says, well, you know, you have some uh, stations that Paramount owns, and we want clearance for the Tom Snyder show in Salt Lake City and <laughs> Atlanta and, and someplace else. And uh, so they, they work all of that out, and so they say, okay, fine. So we, we picked up Almost Perfect. So, uh, so I, I said to our guy at Paramount, well, is this subject on a creative meeting when we talk about what it is they picked up? And he goes, hmm, that's a good question. <laughs> let, let me get back to you. Let me get back to you. So he calls Les Moonves again, and he says, is this... You know, contingent on a creative meeting. And uh, Les says, no, I trust those guys. They'll come up with something. So, so that's it. They picked up almost perfect. We flew back to, to Los Angeles uh, with our show being picked up, and neither of us had any idea what that show was going to be. And uh, then it lasted like half a season. And, you know, and then Les paid me the ultimate compliment later. He said, you know, almost perfect is the best show that I ever canceled. I said, geez, that's really nice. That's really great. That's like, that's like a, a, a girl that you've been in love with your whole life says, you know, you're the best guy I never fucked. <laughs> Thank you. Thank Thanks, you everyone. so much. Good night. <laughs> um, uh, Richard, this, is, this sort of touches on the stuff that we were talking about earlier where... Like getting you know, canceled? So I'm the fired and canceled guy. I love this. No, it's this. this oh, I'm loving this. You know, so so much of this stuff is not about the material. It's not about yeah, the script. I mean, no, it's. Do you want to talk about your experience well, you know, last year with your pilot? Which one of my men? with heavenly? Oh, with heavenly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, look. I mean, it is funny. I mean, I have gotten very, very far in this business with no success. <laughs> but. So there's hope for everyone. (laughs) These stories are are fascinating to us and to you because, you know, 
we worry over the part that we can control, and we worry about it, you know, hugely, because it is the part that we can control, and you kind of forget the fact that there's all these factors that you don't control at all. And, and if you do the best job on anything, whether it's a script or a pilot or anything, it's like playing craps with one dice, you know? You're, you're doing your 50%, okay? It's like if you were going to play craps and someone said, okay, but here, you know what? Take one dice, put it on any number you want. We'll, we'll even give that one to you. That doesn't matter. <laughs> because it's the next dice that matters. So you do everything you can, and if you do it all right, you have achieved 50% of assuring whatever is going to happen with your show. And the other 50% is, do they need another show with a female lead? You know, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Yeah. Uh, it, it, and you're, you're kicking yourself because, you know, your second act twist, you know, wasn't the one you wanted, and you got talked out of the one you wanted by the studio, and you think that's why, and it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with, well, how many shows has ABC picked up from ABC Studios? And what's their relationship with J.J. Abrams right now? Yeah. And what's, I mean, and all of these things are legitimate concerns. And, well, your show is really great, but we know for a fact that's going to be $4 million an episode, and we just don't have that anymore. You know, and Brockheimer's great. He produces great shows, but they're expensive. So, I mean, all these things, you have nothing to do with this. And, what, and, you know, it's time for upfronts in May. And what did NBC just pick up? And how does that affect CBS? And what are they going to do? And it's this big chess game being played by, you know, Les Moonves and a ton of people who, you know, are working at other levels than us. And they'll make their decisions and things will happen or they won't. I mean, I mean, that's a great story. You know, it's sort of based on what Donald Bellisario says. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, you guys are really close, right? <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. saying you picked the phone right up. Yeah. Don! I've never met him. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Did you send him a fruit basket? <laughs> right. Meanwhile, somebody who wrote a really good pilot and uh, worried about that second act twist and everything didn't get on the air because instead they picked up a show that they knew nothing about other than the title. Right. So what, what Ben's talking about is I did a, a pilot for CW last season uh, called Heavenly, so just one year ago right now. And toward it, they, they shot six pilots, they were going to pick up three. So, you know, you figured those are good odds, right? <laughs> and, and they said the, the, the three, you know, the, the, the three front runners were Secret Circle, Heart of Dixie and Heavenly, which was the one that I was uh, I had written and was working on, and and, and that was enough, that was like my passion project. That was something that I really felt this is great. This is something I could happily write forever because you know some guys do a show about you know like Sherlock Holmes, you know, or you know it's like you know the smartest man in the world. You know he can think he's like a chess expert. He can think three, four, five, six or, moves ahead. I like to I like the lady that solves crimes by remembering stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I think she yeah, lives was, near where this crime happened. Maybe she saw something. I just want the only, the only thing I hate about that show is I wanted to go like this when she remembers. <laughs> you know the original title. The original title of that show was The Rememberer. Right, but, but no one could remember true. it. Yeah, the Rememberer. And no one knew what it was about. It was hilarious. <laughs> but yeah, please. Well, well, what I loved about Heavenly was it was about a guy who was a total simpleton. Just the dumbest guy in the room. And I'm like, oh, I can so do this. <laughs> this is my wheelhouse. So anyway, so we make this beautiful little thing. And, uh, and we're really excited. And all the way down, you know, into April and into May, it's like this one, okay. Les has seen it and loves it. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that, does mm -hmm. it? 
And I should have called Don Belisario. Anyway, um, so what happens is uh, Mark Pedowitz sort of comes in at that point as the new head of the network. And, um, and, and he did two, he, he did something really smart. I mean, I will give him credit for, for what he did. A, he wanted to do something, he wanted to do something bold. Okay, and the other thing was he realized CW does not have a lot of money to advertise its shows, and this is just a reality for CW. So they picked up a sh- the CW picked up a show that had been de- developed for CBS. It was Ringer. That was a CBS show, and it had been passed over by CBS. And so they had three spots, and it was going to be Secret Circle and Heart of Dixie and Heavenly until they said, "Wait a second, Sarah Michelle Geller." She is a CW star because she was a WB star. We put her pictures on posters. We know what that is, and people will know what that is. And that's a big star, and that is a TV star, and TV runs by, with stars. That's what it's about. It's about Tom Selleck. <laughs> you know, it's about Ted Danson. That's what the TV business is. Um, and it's about Kiefer Sutherland now. So, um, so anyway, uh, they said, oh, that's our third show. We got it. We got Sarah Michelle Gellar. And they did. And, and, and it was a brilliant move. I mean, it took into account a reality of the CW, which was, what are we going to do? We got to sell these shows. Our shows did not have any recognizable stars, so there you go. Yeah. They couldn't sell a concept. Yeah. 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 You know what? It, it, the, the one thing that I find cause for optimism, it, it, and I was just talking to some friends of mine today that are running community, uh, and... Uh, um, is that even though the getting a show picked up is more and more out of your control and forces beyond your control, keeping a show on the air once you're on the air is actually, uh, you, you can actually affect that now in ways that you couldn't before. Um, um, and, uh, you know, you're looking at the community guys, you know, they, that show's going to be, whether, no matter what you read online if you're a fan, that show's going to be on next year because they, they made deals with uh, 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 Hulu and Netflix and uh, have... Uh, you know, and next year they'll probably cut a couple hundred thousand dollars out of the budget, and they'll find a way. Uh, one of the things that I always try to tell young comedy writers is, if not take, actually taking one accounting class, find a friend that's a line producer. It makes you understand, you know, the simple reality of television production, which is, if you get on a TV show nowadays, it's been on for two or three years. There's a mathematical equation, you know, of uh, uh, how much money, uh, you know, is this show going to make for us? And uh, excuse me. Um, and uh, uh, you know how much does it cost us? And you know, Scrub stayed on for nine years simply because the the ninth year of that show we were making it for like one point three million bucks, you know, oh and had nothing to do with the ratings, you know. And uh, 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 you know, so I, I tell anybody that, that's aspiring get a, get an, uh, even the basic knowledge of the difference between writing uh, exterior football se- uh, stadium. <laughs> And you know, interior snack bar. You know what I mean? Is, uh, but uh, so I, even though I find it more and more frustrating, you know, because there is no code to crack. You can say at pilot season, man, they really love these type of pilots this year. They don't. Okay, they, you just think you've just been told by someone they do because they don't know what they like until they get them. You know. Uh, on the other hand, you know, once you get you once you get on there and you have a little bit of a toehold or, you know, at, at all, you can actually find different ways uh, via having some business savvy to keep your show alive. Let's talk about that a little more in depth for a second, um, specifically with Scrubs, because you guys, when the opportunity arose to kind of change the format of the show or change, you know, the actors, whatever it was, uh, you guys took that opportunity. Was this 
Was this a big decision? Was, no, you know, no. Well, yeah, what went a, into this? There's a weird thing. Scrubs. I, I always. I, I think Scrubs is only on for eight years because there's a big. There's a. We wrote a finale. By the way, I wrote the finale to Scrubs after the fifth year, and it literally sat in my desk till the eighth year, which is wow. you know every year because we'd be like, ah, oh, it's probably it. Oh, it's on again. Okay. Um, <laughs> It was very odd. And then the oddest moment was we did the finale of characters leaving and taking off in the eighth year, and like we're done, and everybody left, and then the ABC caught up, like, hey, let's do it again. And uh, um, uh, the ninth year of that show was supposed to be a spinoff, um, uh, like Aftermath. Yeah. Sure. And uh, uh, thank God we got there. Call me. I would have given you some great ideas. <laughs> and uh, uh, they wanted to keep the brand for monetary reasons, but. Uh, uh, not you know, not that Scrubs was any great shakes, but people online were always like, "Man, in the ninth year it sucked, and it was going to ruin the legacy of the show." And blah blah blah. I could give a shit. You know, he already made a, a joke there. I had worked with the same people not only for eight years, but uh, a lot of them were from Spin City. Some of them now, you know, almost seventeen, eighteen years. And to give a giant group of 110 people another year of yeah. employment, uh, I, I could have cared less if it was the worst show of all time. <laughs> and by the way, thank you for not saying it was. <laughs> but so, yeah, so to me, you know, it becomes less and less about the work and more and more about the people if you're in a good situation. Is this where you are with Cougar Town these days? Yeah, you know, if Cougar Town's on next year, um, it'll be made for three to $500,000 cheaper Every uh, the writing staff will be cut in half. I don't like firing people. The way we did it on Scrubs, the seventh and eighth year, was uh, I divided. I, I kept the whole staff. We had 24 episodes. I said, everybody gets 12 episodes. Wow. And uh, if you have another gig, you can pick if you want to do the front half or the back half. And, uh, uh, you know, we just kept it going. And uh, 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 we'll try to do the same. With this show, it'll be a little harder because, you know, we were in business with a star who, you know, they come with a, a you know big financial price tag, but uh, we're gonna, we're going to give it a shot. That's great. Sure, um, Ken. Let's talk about Mash. Uh, this is I, I sent out an email several months ago saying get me someone who was on Mash for this panel. I want to hear about behind the scenes on that show. What was the room like? How long were you there? Uh, there for four years. Okay. Um, it really wasn't much of a room actually. Uh, one season in particular, season seven. Uh, my partner and I basically wrote the whole season. Why? What? <laughs> <laughs> well, you How know, you th- that th- those, were the, those were the days before there were large staffs. We eventually brought in, um, like, a couple of story editors who were s- marginally helpful, but... Was Larry uh, Gilbert ever there? No, no. At this, at this point, Larry left. But when Larry did the show, Larry basically wrote the whole show himself. It's my prized possession. He signed the DVD for me. I love, I, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah. He's Larry Gelbart, uh, the creator of MASH, and he also wrote Tootsie, Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Oh God, uh, City of Angles. Um, he is he's like absolutely the, the Mozart of comedy writers and, uh, and really was my mentor. And um, so, yeah, basically we wrote, we wrote it ourselves. Um, but what we did was we, we interviewed a lot of doctors and nurses and corpsmen and anyone who was in Korea, and we got a lot of uh, ideas for stories based on that. 
Plus, my partner and I met in uh, an <coughs> Army Reserve unit. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, those were the days when they had uh, drafts. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, and they had a draft and they had a lottery. And they would pick birth dates. And if your birth date was, like, in the first 150, chances are you were drafted. If you were in the, like, bottom 150, you were fine. My draft number was four. <laughs> okay? His was seven. So we met in the Army Reserve. So we felt very comfortable writing the Army because we had to go through basic training and all like that. So we felt very comfortable uh, writing, you know, that, that genre. When did you guys start writing together? We started writing together uh, 1973. Mm-hmm. Were you guys writing talkies at first? What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know the artist? We wrote that originally. <laughs> yeah. And then we wrote uh, Mr. Peepers. And <laughs> no, my, my, I, was, I was a disc jockey always getting fired. And, uh, and David worked at ABC Schlepping Film Cans in a now obsolete department. And, uh, and, and we knew nothing about writing. And uh, we sat down and decided to try writing scripts. And um, the first script we wrote was a pilot about the only thing we knew at the time, college and kids in a dorm. And I had to go to Bennett's bookstore in Hollywood and get a copy of, a, of an odd couple TV script. I didn't even know what a script looked like. <laughs> David had taken a writing class at the University of Miami and got a D in it. <laughs> so, so he was the professor. <laughs> so we're, we're writing this script and you know, we're having a good time. And at the time, uh, David wrote it in longhand and then I would type it. And we're sitting there and I said... Um, hey, uh, what page do uh, you think we're on here? And he goes, uh, about 37, 38. I said, you yeah, know, they start wrapping it up here pretty quick. <laughs> so, so we uh, said, oh, all right. We took 10 minutes and we came up with uh, an ending that would have cost $200 million in 1973. <laughs> and, and we wrote it. The end went out to El Torito for margaritas. We were writers. Um, script didn't sell. Um, but we then were told that you had to uh, write scripts from existing shows for your specs. And uh, at the time, the Mary Tyler Moore show was the one that we really admired. So what we would do is uh, every Saturday night, since you know neither of us had a, a social life, uh, that we would, we would watch the Mary Tyler Moore show and we would hold a microphone up to the speaker and tape it and then we would uh, go back and write an outline based on that show and we did that week after week after week until we started seeing patterns and we sort of deconstructed what they were doing that's and cheating that's that yeah. Yeah. no cheating cheating is getting the DVDs and just take, take one one long weekend with a bottle of scotch and, that's cheating I'm such a mash nerd can I ask you mash questions sure sure the uh, it, by the time because the cat the show was on obviously long in the Korean War did the cast ever ad lib lines, especially with the Alan Alda being there throughout? I mean, was he ever? No. Ever well, the only line? time, the only time anyone ad libbed some lines, um, 
we were sitting in the office one day, and the uh, script coordinator uh, called up and said, and Mike Farrell is adding all these lines. And we go, really? <laughs> what scene are you in? He said, we're in an OR scene on, on page 18. I said, let him do whatever he wants. And he went, really? I said, just let him do whatever he wants. So, um, so he did. And if you know the, the OR scenes, they're all wearing masks. <laughs> <laughs> We we just we just took out all the lines, and and the other so and the other thing, the other thing we did was uh, to sort of get the the cast in line. Is each episode would begin with a table reading, you know, where they cast sits around and they they read the script, and um, and you go from there. And this had been a practice established by Larry from day one that when you finished the table reading, it was like walking a minefield where we'd go, does anybody have anything on page one? Anything on page two, on page three? And uh, yeah, you, you, it's like a cold breeze probably so. went up your sink, right, when I, when, I, when I said that. And generally, generally they were pretty good and they would only bring up issues that were you know, somewhat important. Uh, they didn't understand why they would do this or something like that. Because Aldo was a producer by then, wasn't he? Um, no. By the time, I mean, by the no. time you were there? No, no he, was, okay. he was a consultant. Um, and so every so often, somebody from the cast would have some picayune, stupid little thing, you know? And then, and then that would open the floodgates. And then every page, yeah. somebody else would have somebody, something. And, you know, and we would go through and we would dutifully make those changes and then we would take next week's show and we would take about a half an hour and we would do a rewrite on it and we would turn it into a cold show where it was winter in Korea. Now, they would go out to the Malibu ranch and they would film from sun up to sundown, which in the summer is like 5.30 in the morning until 8.30 at night. And it's 105 degrees out there. And now they're in parkas over fire barrels. Okay? This hat... This happened twice. They figured it out. Anything on page one? Anything on page 38, 39? Okay, good, guys. Thank you. That was it. That's really funny. Um, Richard, what was, what was the first thing you got paid for? Um, first piece of writing. Oh, it was, um, it, it was uh, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory. Um, Mannequin 2 is not looking so bad, is it? <laughs> no, uh, my, uh, I went to college with uh, a guy named Matt Reeves. You guys might know him from Felicity, and he directed uh, Cloverfield. And he let me in. He's a hugely talented guy. Well, we went to USC Film School. He was easily the most talented guy there, so I teamed up with him. <laughs> like you do in you know, science class. You know, get, get the smart lab partner. So uh, after we graduated, we wanted to write a movie, and everyone who ever came to USC to talk to us said, you know, write something original, write from your experience. We want to hear your voice. Don't just write the most popular thing of last summer, you know? So we were, um, we were trying to come up with an idea for something to write. So we were in uh, the video store, 
And we basically thought, God, Die Hard was such a great movie. It's going to be so fun to write something like that. Let's just do that. <laughs> let's just write something that's as good as Die Hard, but, but let's put it on a train. I mean, literally, that's all. I mean, the most craven, crass, <laughs> except for the fact that we love Die Hard. And we thought, God, it, I mean, if we could ever write something that works that well. So, of course, we rented a video of Die Hard. <laughs> <laughs> That was and we broke it down, pause, scene for scene for scene. What's really happening in this scene? Why is this scene there? And when you do that, and by the way, that is the greatest thing you can do. That is how you learn to write. And you do have DVDs now, so you can cheat, and you should. And you really figure it out. And you're like, wow, you know, in my memory, you know, uh, Alan Rickman and his you know, Euro trash take over that building about eight minutes in. It doesn't happen for like 22 minutes. Meanwhile, it's a big argument between Bruce Willis and his wife about are they going to stay together? Well, why is that in the movie? Well, because that's what the movie is about. It's about a guy who will do anything to save his wife and save his marriage. And so that's sort of what, you know, that's the through line of Die Hard. And we learned that and we, so we stole it and, you know, and did something like it. And we wanted this thing to be, you know, and, and we kept saying, this has got to be like a Harrison Ford movie. The one thing it can never be is a movie about 12 terrorists who picked the wrong train to hijack. <laughs> and, uh, and then it became a Steven Seagal movie. And you know what? I just got a residual for that movie last week. I, I will shake that man's hand. He is a worldwide star, folks. So the moral here is go off and write your spec John Carter 2. Right? Uh, Die Hard was a hit, okay? So don't kid yourself. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, and, and you know, we had a great time writing, and it got us in the door. And then, you know, he's done, you know, and he and I worked together again. He directed my pilot, Miracles, which was a show that got on the air for, for a little while. But yeah, that was the first thing we got paid for. And I'll tell you one other quick story about that. This was in the late '80s, early '90s, when specs were selling, you know, feature scripts for like, you know, millions of dollars. And that's what you wanted. And so we wrote this thing, and it made its way around. And when Warner Brothers finally bought it, it was part of a producer package, and we didn't really get that much money. And we were really depressed. So Matt's best friend, J.J. Abrams, came over to the house that day. This was, you know, 20 years ago. And he's got a bottle of champagne. And, he, and you know, of course, J.J., you know, he just finished doing Regarding Henry, you know, in New York with Mike Nichols. So he's bringing us champagne and going, congratulations. And we're like, yeah, except, but it's kind of stupid. I mean, we didn't really get paid that much, and it's not that great a deal. And he's like, guys, if you can't enjoy this, you're idiots. Because yeah. this is as good as it gets. Yep. You will have plenty of time to be pissed off and depressed later. <laughs> <laughs> so open the champagne, we're drinking it. And we're like... Oh my God, he's right. We are idiots, you know? And we drank champagne that night, and he was correct. You have to celebrate those good times. Trouble will come. But when, when you know, back when they had a physical copy of Variety, we, we kept those. But you guys can print out your notices on deadlinehollywood.com. But, it, but it's interesting. I mean, it comes back to this thing of writing that thing that you love and that you can control. You guys set out to write a script that you really genuinely care oh, about. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, we were thrilled. Uh, Bill, let's go back to you for a moment. Sure. Um, can you look at, you know, you've written dozens and dozens of scripts at this point. Can you look to one and say, that's the one that, or a couple and say, those are the ones that uh, came out the way I meant them to. 
that I, I deeply loved. Yeah, you know what? Um, uh, it's very interesting. You know, uh, the very hard thing for me to separate at this point. I don't know if it's because I'm older and I have kids, and uh, um, is people I like would ask. But Scrubs is very personal and uh, to me, and it was based on my my uh, guy I'm meeting right after this is the real JD. He's a cardiologist here. We went to college together, and I loved that experience. It's like. Uh, you know, it was like making a college film for nine years. You know, nobody ever came around. It was in a dank, shitty apartment. I mean, not apartment, a hospital. I don't know if you guys ever saw it. It was like off of uh, uh, the 101 over by Coldwater. And uh, uh, it literally, if you'd gone by, we would have let you in. Your European <laughs> people used to come by to take pictures of it. And I, if I drove up and I said, what are you doing? They're like, we, you know, I can't do an accent, so I'm not going to try. But they say, we want pictures of the hospital. I said, come in, be in the show. You know, and... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, were you guys we were, really? You were left alone, pretty let's much. Say we were left alone. That's you know, under the radar. You know, and I think it was because we were a dinosaur. You know, we were a show on NBC that was owned by uh, uh, ABC, right. and so ABC didn't really want to concentrate on the show that was on another network. That network didn't really send people over because they weren't really paying much for the show at all, and it was a, a great experience. Um, I really liked. Uh, my favorite pilot beyond that was a, was a piece of writing. was a script I did with two buddies called Nobody's Watching. And it was, uh, um, I think, and it's credit to them. Their names are uh, Garrett Donovan and Neil Goldman. They're the two guys that run Community with Dan Harmon. And uh, it was, uh, uh, I like it for two reasons. One, I thought it was a really funny pilot. And it was big middle finger to the way TV works because uh, we knew if it ever got picked up, it would be like, nobody's watching, nobody's watching. <laughs> and uh, we didn't care. And, uh, uh, and it was really about uh, two young TV fans. And uh, I liked that experience a lot because not only did I love the script, but I think we changed things a little bit because we you know, didn't get picked up. And then we released it on the Internet. I don't know if anybody was around. And it got picked up again off of the fact that on the, on the Internet... It got a, a fan base, and we got lucky. It was like one of the stories was told. was uh, became the favorite show of Bill Carter, who writes for the New York Times, his son at Notre Dame. And so because of that, then he wrote a New York Times article about how this really funny pilot uh, was illegally released onto the Internet, and his kids think it's better than the shows that were picked up. So it was picked up and then thrown away a second time. But uh, I, 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 you know, the, the, the one thing that you have to adjust to I think it's one of the, one of the you know, subtext of your question is uh, uh, if you have one thing that's one of your favorites that actually ends up on TV or being made as a feature, then you're super lucky, you know. And uh, uh, I would say, you know, of the eight things that you know that I love the most, you know, two of them ended up on TV, and, and, and I, I consider myself incredibly lucky. That's yeah. great, uh, Ken. Same question. Can you point to episodes or pieces of writing or even scenes that you've done that you say uh, well, that came out right? I would say there's an episode of Mash called Point of View, which we did, which is seen through the eyes of the patient, and uh, and you know we sold that to CBS saying this will either be the best or worst episode of the year, uh, and they let us do it. So I, I would say that one, and. Um, there's, uh, you know, we did we did a series that lasted six episodes on CBS that I really like called Big Wave Big Dave's, Wave Dave, yeah. and it starred Adam Arkin and uh, Kurtwood Smith, uh, uh, Jane Kaczmarek, uh, David Morse, and uh, basically it was three idiots having a midlife crisis in Chicago and open a surf shop in Hawaii. <laughs> and uh, we... We we loved that show, and uh, when CBS picked it up, 
they said, well, we can't put it on the fall because we have commitments to Diane English and uh, Linda Bloodworth, but we'll put it on in the summer, and we'll put it on after Murphy Brown for six episodes. And we said, well, when is it going to start going on the air? It's basically like, what time is it? Four? Uh, you know, in two weeks. Uh, and we said, look, the only way we can do this show physically to get it on and meet our air dates is to have no network interference whatsoever. None. Because there's not going to be any outlines. There's nothing. It's going to be all, you know, by the seat of our pants. And uh, if you don't want to do that, we understand. We respectfully decline. We can't do the show in the summer. And they said, okay. And you know what? To their credit, they they stuck to it. And it was just a great experience because we had no interference from anybody. We just did whatever we wanted. And I was really proud of the show. And uh, it lasted six episodes and got 19 shares, which today, you know... Number one. Today. It was like, yeah, it was like, number one, we get picked up for 18 years. <laughs> you know. But, I was so uh, excited about, you know, you said Almost Perfect ran for a year and a half. Yeah. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, a year and a half? <laughs> One day. <laughs> you know, we never had a last episode like, like uh, Bill talked about. But what we had planned on doing is, because we had three series, uh, Almost Perfect, Big Wave Daves, and this show for Mary Tyler Moore. And what we were going to do, if we knew that we had a last episode is we were going to bring back the characters from those other and three shows. All. And we were going to end all three series <laughs> at once. The danger of the, um, the, the such a great experience, but you get spoiled of no network pre, you know, presence. Yeah. But uh, my mentor is Gary, Gary David Goldberg, and we created Spin City together. And they, they, part of the deal when they auctioned it off, whichever network bought it, there was no, uh, no network casting, no testing, no uh, uh, script notes, no anything. And so I was, you know, I was 26 and wearing a baseball hat, and uh, I, you know, I was casting in uh, L.A. and Gary was casting in New York, and I said, "There's this white-haired guy here from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think it's really funny." He's like, he's like "Barry Boswick cast him," so I got to go, "Yeah, the part's yours." And uh, he, he thought I was totally high or something. He's like, "The part's not mine." I'm like, "No, it's yours. I was just on the." But uh, um, the reason he got spoiled is Gary only worked on the show for one year, and he left uh, three, like about three quarters away into the first year. And uh, when he left, uh, uh, he left on a Thursday night, and uh, Monday morning I showed up for the table read, and there was like 23 people from ABC there. I'm like, this is weird. I wonder why they're all here. <laughs> I'm like, oh, that was only Gary's deal. Now you got it. It's so nice you guys to come visit. I just thought everybody's been really cool, you know, shaking hands down the line. It's never like that again. It's so sad. Um, you talked in that Marin interview, uh, Bill, about you know the things that you learned from Gary. Uh, what I was curious about is what of those things did you bring to running your own shows? Uh, you know what the uh, the the biggest thing is. Look, Gary Goldberg sent me to show running camp. Right? And one of the cool things right now, even though you could argue in a different five-hour-long session that network TV is dying, is that scripted TV isn't dying, 
there's more channels and everywhere. And then I, and, you know, I see scripted. There's scripted shows I watch on, you know, at least fifty, sixty different channels. I mean, I, I love television. And uh, 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 you guys saw me mouth. I've seen almost perfect and big weight Dave's. I saw them both. I love them both. The, uh, Let uh, me buy you dinner. There you go. Come on. <laughs> You had Miles Trentel on yeah. Almost Perfect, too, for a while. I, liked that. I can never remember his name, but that guy's great. Let me buy you a car. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm so excited about my car, I forgot what we were talking about. Um, I really don't. What were we talking about? Show running. Show running. Oh, yeah, so Gary. Like, look, the point of that was uh, uh, there's this cool program right now that I teach. I don't know if these guys might do some stuff too. The Writers Guild called the Showrunners Training Project. And, uh, and the reason that we do it is because now there's opportunities for people to be dropped into, uh, hey, go run your own show. And if you don't know how to do it, man, you are uh, uh, absolutely screwed. Okay? And, uh, and it's just this snowball that keeps getting bigger and bigger when you're in production. And so uh, it also takes over your life when you're doing it. And one of the things Gary taught me is you teach people you know, how to do different aspects of stuff and you empower them. And uh, uh, hopefully you get to, you know, by, on Scrubs, on Cougar Town, even on Spin City, we got to the point that we knew that the writers could go in and do the first pass with the editor you know, of their cut. You know, you would say, all right, first thing, you go in and you take out all the crap that you know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take out and get it down to like two minutes over. Not, not being the one that has to be in there to freeze you up. So for me, the biggest thing is uh, uh, not micromanaging uh, except in the area that you want to micromanage. You know, and for me, I, I, like, I like protecting, you know, what I, I think of is, is my voice in a show. And I, uh, the problem with show running we all got in this to be writers. It generally takes you further and further away from what you got into it to do. And so that was the biggest lesson he taught me. That's great. Uh, Richard, you're nodding during that. Did yeah, you have experience I, like that? Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's a couple different schools of thought. I, I'm really glad you said that because I, I think people hear the other side. They hear about the guys that are there 24 hours a day and they're, you know, they sleep on the floor of the editing room. And why are you hiring an editor then? What's the editor doing? You know, and he's rewriting every script. Well, I mean, are you on set redoing the lines for each of the actors? You know, I mean, and maybe you are, but, but you do get to a point of diminishing returns. Hire people you trust. Let them do their thing as far as you possibly can. Um, otherwise, I don't think, you know, I, we, we've come up with this, this formula. And, and uh, you know, unfortunately, it is true. Hours spent in the room does not equal quality of show, does not equal ratings. Mm -hmm. And ratings do not equal quality of show, and amount of time spent in the room does not equal ratings, and none of those things equal any other thing. This is like the uh, throwing out the story, for comedy writing, the throwing out the story argument, which is when a network doesn't like a particular episode of a show, and they're like, you might have to throw out the A story. My position is always like, I guarantee you, if we just try to make the one that you hate now... Yeah. A little funnier and a little better that that will be just as good, if not better, than the one you want us to throw together in two days, working yeah. 48 yeah. straight yeah. hours. Yeah, we used yeah, to say on Cheers, yeah. we used to say on Cheers, the first year of Cheers, the ratings were horrible. I mean, we were not only losing to Simon and Simon, we were losing to, <laughs> to Tucker's Witch, for Christ. <laughs> you know, and... You know, and, and NBC would come in and go, God, we don't know what to, what, you know, they'd come to us like, you know, fix it. And we were like, well, we'll, we'll stay later, another half hour tonight. That, that should do it, right? 
Yeah, yeah. It, it's because everyone's at their funniest at 4 a.m. Yeah. When they don't want to be there. Especially That's when you're really getting the gold. Especially now that drugs aren't cool anymore. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, do, you do not want to go to work for a showrunner who is recently divorced. Oh, my God. Okay? That's by the way. He'll sit in the room the all night long. You know what you want? You want the guy with three kids that still right. digs his wife. One of the things I've noticed, Even too, a single showrunner. You don't want uh, I've gotten to the point that um, it's one of the beauty of single camera comedy, and because what are they really going to do? Is as long as there's six pages to shoot the next day, we just go, we go home. Uh-huh. Yeah, man, we just do. We go, we go home. It's, as long as you know we're not going to lose money. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, even when we get crashed and, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know we're way behind. Uh, uh, you know, someone will call and say, "Where's the script?" I'm like, hey, "We sent over all we got." You know, it's uh, Sunday or it's Friday, and uh, not Sunday. I wouldn't work weekend. That's crazy. <laughs> but, uh, 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 we got the six pages we're going to shoot Monday. We got an outline, but you know, you guys picked up extra episodes. We're grinding through it. When we get the rest of the script, you guys going to work all weekend? I'm like, I don't see that happening. <laughs> and they're like, "Well, we need a script," and I'm like, "Well, you guys should get to work." You know, <laughs> get the get the paper out. So uh, uh, I don't think that. Uh, well, you guys can weigh in. I think the choice to burn yourself 24-7 is not always the choice of the network or studio. It's quite often the showrunner. Yeah, and w- similar when, you know, I've worked a lot on multi-camera shows where you have a run-through at 4 o'clock and then you go back and rewrite. And generally what we would do is once you'd hit like 1, one thirty, we'd say, go home. We'll, we'll see in the morning, and we'll just send to the stage what we have. And if we don't have the second act yet, and it means they're going to have to stay later, and they can't get to Costco, uh, <laughs> then, then, then that's the way it goes. But, you know, the amount of time it takes to finish a scene might be three hours from one to four, and it's one hour from 11 to noon. So, yeah. I was just wondering, uh, you talked about getting fired from things. I wondered if you ever walked away from anything um, and why and how that worked. Yeah, well, when we were on the Mary Tyler Moore show and it was not a pleasant experience, the one thing we learned from that... This was not the Mary Tyler Moore show. No, no, this was... was was, um, This was comeback vehicle three of five. Uh (laughs) Yeah, the good one. Yeah, the good one. It was a good one, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of the show. Was it the variety show? No, no. It wasn't that. No, this okay. was the one with James Ferentino and Katie Seagal. We discovered Katie Seagal. Oh, yeah. And um, uh, John Aston was in it. But um, we now have a speech when we um, get in business with uh, an actor or a star. And that speech basically is, look, we are going to work very hard, do whatever we can to make this a great show and a show that we're all very proud of and we will do whatever rewriting is necessary and we'll do whatever we can to show you in the best light. You turn into a monster, we're in Hawaii. <laughs> and we mean it. And we, uh, we had a pilot at Fox uh, a few years ago and we had uh, a star who was just I- intolerable and we finished the pilot and the next day, we called Fox, and uh, it was Robert in the, De Niro in the studio. Yeah, yeah. No, no talent. <laughs> no talent. And we we said, um, if you want to redo the show with somebody else, fine. If you want to pick up the show with this actor, 
also fine, we're gone. We are never walking onto a soundstage with this guy again. And they said, well, you know, this, the studio was like, well, you know, this, this could kill the project. And we said, look, the instrument has not been devised that could measure our indifference whether, whether this project is, is going forward. We, we are done. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I think that is, that is a, a, such a kind of wise move in terms of self-preservation, if you can do it. Yeah. I mean, if, Life's if you're too not, short. You have to do it. Yeah, you know, it, you'll be in cedars otherwise. Uh, yeah, but, but it, the, the weird thing about it is that you're dealing, you're in an industry that's, that where the people in it, and often the ones who are most successful, are in a way self-selected through their own brand of mania and cutthroated whatever. I mean, the, the, these you're typically not working with people who are well-balanced, uh, I'm okay, you're okay kind of people. That's not how they succeed. That's not how people succeed. You do what you have to do. So you, you can definitely find yourself on a whaling ship with Captain Ahab. And <laughs> land is nowhere in sight. <laughs> The Hunger Games and, and, yeah. is a great model. <laughs> Read it, you'll succeed. You know, and, and, and then you, you have to make those decisions. I mean, you know, luckily I've, I've never had to walk away from anything. It's always been killed in front of me. <laughs> uh, so, and, and, you know, the other thing is, you know, people talk about, you know, uh, like you'll be, you'll be in the first 13 of a show and, and someone's like, oh boy, you know, we're going to fire that guy. We should fire that editor. We should fire this guy. And I'm like, let's, let's get through the first 13. Then, then we'll see who's going to fire who. Never fired anyone in my life. <laughs> I, I, uh, I turned down one gig, but I think it's, you know, the one reality is, and it was when I was young. I'd, I'd worked on, you know, Boy Meets World and The Nanny, and uh, um, uh, I got offered a job. I think it was on the 27th year of Empty Nest on that show. <laughs> and uh, uh, there was a weird thing back then. I don't even know if it still exists for young writers, but it seemed like all these guys from The Lampoon were going on to the Seinfelds and the hot shows, and that all that, you know, I didn't go to film school. And uh, um, that, you know, I was very quickly becoming a person that, that all my connections and all my jobs were on shows that I, I myself wouldn't watch on television, didn't like. And I, I say that I was only able to walk away, it's to say no, because uh, I had no ties. I was super happy living with five guys in a, a two-bedroom house, and, uh, um, and, and, if, uh, and I would not be now. That would be an incredible drag right now. So, I, uh, you, know, you know, life does get in the way, and those are decisions, I think, to be made. I mean, not to be the practical guy when you're young. You know, I mean, the one thing I do tell people now, though, man, with this economy, there's no better time to be a struggling artist. Come on. Oh, there's struggling accountants and struggling attorneys, too, you know. So uh, why not starve doing something you like? But... Yeah. Other questions? When reading an amazing standout spec, whilst being true to the characters, where do you fall on uh, either writing a story that's outrageous and awesome but would never fall into your series versus a story that would seamlessly fit into your series? Oh, that's a good question. I'll, I'll fire it up because I made a bad joke when you walked up. Um, <laughs> It felt like walking up was going to take a long time. It didn't. I was wrong. Uh, if there are uh, more questions, make your way look, up the, now. The, the, uh, everybody's got their own prejudices about that stuff. I think the most important thing for me personally, if you're going to write a spec for my show, and I don't mind reading specs for my own shows, is that, the, uh, that you prove that you've seen the show you know, and that the character, that you know the relationships. 
and uh, that you prove uh, that you know the voices of the characters. And uh, beyond that, um, I could, you know, as long as it's a well-told, well-structured uh, story, I could, I could care less. The thing that I find really fascinating for me personally is that uh, uh, I'm not getting that just in the last five years, what I get when, when people are trying to get gigs is not the same. It used to be specs. You get whatever the hot spec is of the moment, and maybe uh, uh, now, now, by the way, I'm getting... With the technology, you know, I'm getting short films that people have written and made. I'm getting, um, um, uh, you know, a lot more original samples. I'm getting plays. That I've even seen some videotape performances of scenes they want me to watch. I think that the cool thing is that when everybody's wondering if their spec's just going to be one of a, uh, you know, of a million, that there's different things that you can do now. Because you guys all know that everybody up here is looking at stacks and stacks. And so I'll tell you, the, the funniest kid I ever hired, I liked his spec, and then a DVD came with it. And it said a uh, writing sample, and uh, you know I thought it would be like scenes from stuff he wrote, and I put it in, and it was ten minutes of him like this at a computer. <laughs> <laughs> I had to hire him. Come on, that's cool, right? His name's, his name's Mike Schwartz. He's super, super funny. <laughs> you guys good with that? Hi, uh, the three of you guys are all really prolific. Just wondering if you guys have struggled with it, dealt with burnout, struggled with it, how you get past it. Well, when you're on a show, it's rolling, right? You can't struggle. No, that's not true. I mean, uh, if you're on a show, Ken can answer this too. If you're on a show for a long time, the closest I ever come to burnout is if the staffs change over, you're sometimes sitting in a room with people that are so excited to have their first gig and scrubs would be like this on the sixth year someone would be like what's Dr. Cox mad about and I'd be like who cares like, I, don't, I don't care what he's mad about I don't care about J.D. and Elliot I just want to kill myself and you'd see these little 21 year old faces that are so excited to be there just get sad so I, I yeah. this is TV because you know TV is, is uh, goes on and on and on and on so that's the hardest stuff dealt with. Yeah, at the end of a season, um, you're usually just fried. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you're working on fumes uh, the last uh, few weeks anyway because whatever lead time you had, it's kind of like Pac-Man where it's just like <laughs> eating away at you. And you get down to those last few episodes and you're writing the episode on the weekend and taking it to the stage on Monday. So when a season's over, uh, I, I can't write a grocery list. <laughs> and you almost get excited to write something new yeah. eventually, yeah. too. So it's, it's less about writer's block and about never wanting to type the name of the characters that you've written over right. and over, <laughs> ever again. Yeah, once again, never been there long enough to get <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to burnout. <laughs> By the way, Looking Forward to Burnout is a great title for a book. Right? I gotta tell you, that's solid. It's, I already sold it. <laughs> it's got an overall deal. Um, any other questions? Um, let, me, let me just go uh, down the line, starting with Richard. Uh, we didn't get to ask, what are your early influences? What was stuff that you responded to, whether it's television, books, whatever, movies as a kid? But also, what are you watching now? What are you enjoying? Well, uh, I mean, I can tell you what it was in the beginning. Uh, it's real simple. There was a guy named Stephen J. Cannell. And I didn't know... Yeah, please, please. I mean, th- th- this guy, you know, if you've ever watched an episode of The Rockford Files or, or if you, you know, going further back, you know, something like Beretta or 
Hard Castle and McCormick or Riptide or Wise Guy or Greatest American Hero. I mean, it, it, this was one of the first people whose name I kept seeing come up over and over again and went, oh, wait a second. So, so if there's action and it's funny and people are being clever, then that guy is involved, you know? And, oh, the A-team. And then when you're 16 and you're watching the A-team, there's nothing better in the world. So th- that was the first time I thought, oh, okay, I, this guy writes for TV and people write this stuff. And that means that I can do it too. And so that's what I did. I was in high school and I'd go home every day and I wrote my A-team specs. And, and I kept writing. And I was writing specs. I mean, literally in junior and senior year for high school, I was writing specs for Remington Steel and Cheers <laughs> and Family Ties wow. and wow. The Equalizer. And that's all I did. And did I ever reject cover. you? What? Did I ever reject you? Oh, I never got that oh. far. I was going to be rejected. I gotta, it's going to sound like a joke, but did you know he was a writer because of that cool end logo? That's what I was trying awesome. to do. Yeah. <laughs> Even before that happened, I knew who he was. And, that, and of course, he made a big deal out of that. He wanted to make it clear, no, I'm still a writer, basically, and that's why he did the thing. Anyway. Oh, wait, when so, you were writing these, these specs, which would be fan fiction now. Um, <laughs> That's what specs are. Absolutely. When you're writing for another show, that's what they are. But how, how did you did you know what they were supposed to look like? Did you know how to Well, do there this? was exactly one book on the market written by a guy named J. J. Michael Straczynski, who, oh, by the way, this has come up before. Huge yeah. guy, you know, writing yeah. even now. And there was one book, and, and I love the title <laughs> of the book. It's like, you know, writing for film, television, and radio. <laughs> <laughs> It was 1983, and this was the one book. And again, it, it bought in the one bookstore, you know. There was not uh, Barnes & Noble. So, so I got that book, and it had, you know, where you put the margins and everything. And that was my Bible. At the back, it had a list of agents. And so I got in my mom's IBM Selectric and wrote, <laughs> query, I, 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 congratulations, I've written an A-Team episode. <laughs> I hope you're sitting down. <laughs> I'm 16. It gets better, you know. <laughs> I sent these things out, you know, and and I sent them out. I'd send out hundreds of these, but I had to write each one individually. I mean, this was, you know, oh my God, in the days before computers. So this is and and uh, and I did. So I started writing in March of 1983, writing scripts, finishing them, trying to get an agent, trying to sell. 1983, I made my first sale in 1993. Wow. So, you know, and thank God I started early. You know, <laughs> got that first 10 years out of the way. Uh, and I recommend it to all of you. Uh, Ken, early influences, things you responded to? Well, I've been years. around a long time. The beginning of my career was uh, done in the movie Hugo. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Woody Allen, the early Woody Allen, was, was a huge uh, influence on me. I, I was, like I said, a disc jockey in radio, and I was doing the all-night show in San Bernardino, and I was making $600 a, a month, and I was like trying to be funny over you know, every... Tony Orlando and Dawn record, you know, for the eight people who were up, and you know, three of those were probably Seven um, Eleven night managers who were tied up in the back. So, uh, and 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 I saw Sleeper one night, and I went like, "What's wrong with this picture? This guy's writing this hilarious stuff, and it's visual and movies and everything." And you know, I'm sitting in a cow pasture in the middle of the night. Uh, so that was, uh, that was my big influence. Then I would say 
uh, Woody Allen, uh, Neil Simon, um, Mel Brooks, uh, you know, all those guys, uh, Larry Gelbart, Jim Brooks. Um, and I was very fortunate in that I was able to actually um, learn from a couple of my idols. In when La- was that? Larry Gelbart and Jim Brooks. I was oh, able sure. to, you know, work for those guys. Yeah. So, uh, so those would be my, my early influences. Uh, Bill? Uh, one of the one of the reasons I was excited to be here, Ken. You know, I mean, come on, Cheers, Mash. Uh, you know, for me, uh, those are those are. Uh, look, it brings up my big pet peeve. My two is, cars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my big, I, I, you know, and I, I wasn't bullshit before. I saw Big Wave Dave's. It's all almost perfect. Uh, the uh, and, and uh, the point I'm trying to make is my big pet peeve personally is people. Uh, not only in the industry but in the world like to say I don't watch TV Uh, first of all you fucking liar yes you do (laughs) it's not a crack habit it's just television it's fine you know what I mean Um, but beyond the joke of that uh, I am um, uh, relentlessly depressed every time I uh, uh, meet a, uh, a young wannabe writer of any kind that can't list Twenty influential influential uh, shows, or you know, twenty comics that they love, you know, as a comedy writer, or twenty features that they can. I spent this morning, this morning, talking with a bunch of buddies about whether or not Midnight Run was the perfect <laughs> action comedy movie. You know, uh, get a, eat a sandwich, do fucking something. God, that, that movie kills me. <laughs> fucking airport. All right, go watch it. They're gonna love it. I'm telling you, it's a great movie. Um, but uh, uh, list too long to mention. I, you know, I, I grew up watching television and uh, um, uh, would beg to uh, stay up late and watch TV shows the same way that I think kids now beg to play computer games. You know, <laughs> and uh, uh, just by being here, I assume that a lot of you are the same. Yeah. Uh, and very quickly, are, what are you watching now? What's what's your room? Talking uh, you know, about? I do. I, I go. One of the things I like about Twitter is uh, is uh, there's TV nerds on there as well. That you can reach out, and I always ask at the end of uh, each year now, either online or there, say what shows should I be catching up on. Um, uh, right now, um, uh, I got all of Archer, which I never watched. I think it's- <laughs> right. And then I'm not a uh, Claire Danes fan, and all my buddies said I gotta oh, watch Homeland. Gotta I'm, watch I'm Homeland. In. I'm no. in, by the way. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. Is she here? Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching it, all right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I watch. Uh, I, by the way, I got I got my wife and I got hooked on Tosh just for a- absolute going to bed. You know, uh, background noise comedy candy. It's pretty damn funny. But uh, I watch anything I can. Ken, uh, well, Cougar Town and Grimm, of course. There we go. Uh, Come on. Uh, <laughs> uh, comedies. I watch Parks and Rec and uh, and Modern Family. And uh, I am I am so hooked on Justified. <laughs> I am so hooked on Justified. And I'll be watching uh, Mad Men again. And uh, Archer's uh, is is very funny. The Good Wife. Um, of course, now it's baseball season. Yeah. So I'm sitting here. I'm watching baseball tonight all the time. I don't, I don't, I'm not going to interrupt, but I got to say it too because I'm not a fantasy guy. But uh, Game of Thrones oh, yeah. na- crushed me. I would uh, I would give up five years of my life to have my own little dragon that just would be I was like come on I was feeding crackers and shit how good would that be I'm in alright sorry Richard Uh, 
I, I, I watch almost nothing good because it makes me too angry. <laughs> <laughs> but some of the good... I mean, yeah, I've, I've seen some of these things they talk about. Um, but it's also it's easier for me to watch comedy because I'm not in that world, so I don't know those people, so I don't have to hate them. So I do enjoy Modern Family. But you know what? I'm going to give a shout-out to The Middle, which I think is a just a brilliantly observed show. Uh, if, you, if you're married and you have kids, this show really, really gets it. And if you're not watching it, you should be watching it. So I'll community say. too. Community. Oh, yeah. community. Come on, yes, community. Some of them go without saying. Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> Thank my guests. Yeah. Richard Haddam, Ken Levine, and Bill Lawrence. Thanks to everyone here in Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics and to H26LA. Thanks to Ed over there and to Dan Byrne for doing our theme song. Everybody get out. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Thank <laughs> you.